You turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, and, and really, <laughs> the more I study these passages, and we, we really want to get the main idea of what these passages are teaching, but, but let me share this, that really who we're learning about here is God, the, the biblical God, not the God made up by certain individuals or the God maybe even of our own imaginations, maybe that we have made up of what we think God should be like. Um, what we're learning about is the biblical God. And, and the conclusion you come to as you, as you look at this, these passages, the conclusion you come to is that I can trust a God like this, and I can trust him not only with my own life, but I can trust him with others' lives too. That God is at work. And in Romans chapter 2, we began this second case. Uh, the first case was God versus the outright rotten sinner, we might call them there, um, uh, who are guilty of suppressing God's truth. And in chapter 2, we, we begin this second case, uh, God versus the unbelieving moral person. This is the person who, who will go out of their way to do something nice for you. They're just, they're just moral people. You don't really see the outright rotten sin that you see in chapter 1 of those individuals. This is the person who doesn't believe in Jesus, but they are moral people. The charge against them is judging others you consider worse than yourself. It's the looking at chapter 1 with, uh, you know, almost with revulsion. It's just, you know, I, I want nothing to do with those kind of people. And I, I stand up. I, we, Mary Lee and I recently gave a, a gift to Allison. Um, she wanted, instead of cards, she wanted, they gave her a baby shower. She wanted a book that had, ma had meaning to us, you know, for our children or, or when we were growing up. Um, but um, it was, um, we gave her, I think it's called Norman and Sydney. And Norman is somebody who is uh, always dressed well, always on time, always everything's right about him. He's proper. Of course, he looks down upon other people who are not as uh, well organized as they are. And uh, Sydney is the person that never, ever, nothing ever goes right for him. You know, his house is a mess. He tries to be on time. He ends up being late because of this or that. And just to, and God sends each of them an invitation to meet with him at this place. And so Norman goes and he thinks, well, God, you're really good. You're going to pat me on this head and say, good dog, good dog. You know, you're going to pat me on the head and, and really say good things about me. And he goes in before God. And uh, God says, you know, you are, you are prideful. And you look down upon others, and you consider yourself better than other individuals because of the things that you do or you, you don't do. And uh, God, you know, Norman goes out really <laughs> kind of devastated because God spoke the truth to him. And it, it really, it actually changed Norman when he understood God's point of view. Now, Sidney comes in, and he, you can imagine what he thinks he's going to get, you know, you know, whipping the poor puppy or whatever. Uh, you never do anything right. That's what he expects from God. That's the image of God that he has. And, goes, and God says, I have three things to say to you, Sid, or, yeah, Sidney, uh, three things. Number one, I love you. And number two, 
I love you. And number three, I love you. And then he goes. And it changed both of their lives to realize what God really was like because they had built up their wrong images of who God is. And I, 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 here's the person who's a, who's a Norman. Here's a person who thinks they have it all together and I'm, a, you know, I'm far better than these people over here. And in terms of actions, perhaps they are. But they're, they're judging those. They consider themselves better than. Their sin especially would be pride. And in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 2, we, we have the, the basis for God's judgment on all, on all people. And the Bible teaches that God, without partiality, deals with people according to truth, according to works or deeds, according to opportunities, and according to the secrets of men. They're secrets, a person's secrets. That's the way God will deal with every person without Jesus. And you say, well, that, that makes sense. He judges according to truth. He judges according to deeds. He judges according to the opportunities that a person has. He, he judges according to the secrets of men. And you say, that's the kind of judge I would like to stand before that, you know, that and so, but that's what we're learning. And so the first week we got into this passage, we, we talked about what God is like, and we talked about that God is compassionate, and he's gracious, and he, he's slow to anger, and he's abundant in loving kindness, and he's, he, he's a, a, abundant in truth, and he's a forgiving God, and he's a, 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 you know, he's a just God. And you say, again, wow, that's some God. And so today we're learning further truth about the God of the Bible. That God, without partiality, will judge this moral person or religious person or the outright rotten sinner of chapter 1. He will judge them, these people without Jesus. He will judge them according to truth, works, opportunity, and a person's secrets. And these principles here of judgment are not the basis of salvation, they are the basis of God's judgment in every person's life without Jesus. And with the moralist here in these verses in chapter 2, Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing here, focuses on this future day of wrath. God will take care of these people. It may not be while they're on this earth. It may be at this, what's called the great white throne judgment, where only unbelievers will be, but God will deal with these people who think that they're superior and better than others. You know, I'm not like that person. I'm better than them. God will deal with the prideful moralist. And so I'd like to read these verses in chapter 2. And we'll start with verse 1. We went through 1 through 5 last week. But it says, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God, and it literally says, is according to truth. 
the way the New American Standard, we know the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things, but it's literally according to truth. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And we saw in chapter 1 that the sin of all people is suppressing truth, known truth that they have about God. It may be very limited amount of knowledge, but every person has some truth about God. Every person knows that God exists and he's powerful. He makes that known through his creation and from within an individual. And so... Every person has practiced suppression of truth. And he says here in verse 3, Do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness or injustice, that person will receive wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. In two weeks, we'll read straight from Scripture. Paul quotes the Old Testament, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. And so in verses 6 through 11, we see that God will judge each person according to his or her works. Probably quoting a little bit from Proverbs chapter 24, verse 12, the attorney, the prosecuting attorney, Paul, continues to hammer home his points on the basis of God's judgment. Here it's according to works. In other words, God punishes evil and rewards good. And by the way, that's a government's responsibility also. According to 1 Peter chapter 2, that the Bible teaches that the, a government... That any person, whether it's a king, just anybody in a position of authority, has the responsibility to reward good and punish evil. That's what a government's responsibility, God-given responsibility is. Now, we've gone far beyond that. And the problem is, when you remove God from the picture, which our government has... When you remove the biblical God from the picture, you no longer have a standard against which to measure things, and so truth becomes what this individual thinks or what this individual thinks, and we end up in hatred for one another because it's the truth according to me versus the truth according to you. And that's what we have today. 
going on. But God here is going to rightly punish evil and reward good. In verse 7, when it says, To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. This teaches that if a person lives a, and get this, a perfect life, Eternal life is that individual's. God will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that he offers. The problem is no one does. Because if a person wants to work for eternal life, it requires long-term perfection. The problem is, is, is that no one can possibly live like this without Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Jesus explained eternal life in John 17, 3, when he says eternal life is not a reward for effort. It's a gift to those who trust Jesus as Lord. Verse 8, yet for those who are selfishly ambitious, who aren't persuaded by the truth and who obey injustice, the reimbursement will be wrath and indignation. If persuaded by injustice and not the truth, then the resulting deeds will reveal that. And God will fairly judge our deeds. He will. He won't make a mistake. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, peace for, to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there's no partiality with God. God will judge without partiality. The word partiality means to, to, to receive face. You, you, you base your, your decisions upon how the other person looks, on their appearance. Or on their race. God doesn't receive anybody's face. No matter whether that person is a pagan or a moralist or religious. If one does evil, there will be pressure and narrowness of place. And there are no exceptions here. And the reason he mentions the Jew first and then the Greek, the reason he mentions this is because the Jews expected God to show favoritism because they were God's chosen people. Well, God chose us back. I can trace my lineage back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I'm a favorite of God simply because of my ancestry. God chose us. He gave us his word. He has blessed us. And it's true. A Jew did have great advantages but instead of being treated as God's favorite, he or she will be justly judged for his use of those advantages and opportunities. Advantages, advantages don't make anyone a favorite or exempt. Well, I come from a Christian family. It doesn't make any difference. Verse 12, for all who have sinned, get, the, get these verses here, they're so important. For all who have sinned without the law, and he's talking about the written law there, the law of Moses. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. 
For it is not the hearers of the of the the law that are, are right or are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that, listen to these verses, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, good news, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. And so in 12 through 15, we have that God will judge according to opportunity. God won't hold someone accountable for something he doesn't have. If one sins and doesn't have the written law, he'll perish without it. If one sins and has the written law, that person will be judged by the law. In other words, each person will be judged according to the light or truth that he or she has. A non-Jewish person, a Gentile, as they're called here, a Gentile wouldn't perish because he lacked the law which the Jew possessed. If the Gentile perished, it's because he too has suppressed God's truth. People are not saved by the light they have. They are judged by the light they have. It's not the educated in the law, it's the doers of the law that will be justified. And again, it requires perfection, which no one can do without Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Some Jews thought that because they had been given God's law that they would inherit God's kingdom regardless of how they lived. That's wrong. Knowledge without action is worthless. Obedience, not familiarity, is the key here. And another way of saying 14 and 15, even Gentiles who don't have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they're doing right. If knowledge, get this, if knowledge saved a person, everybody would be saved because all have some law. They either have the written law as the Jews had or they have the law written in their hearts and they see throughout creation that God exists and he's powerful. Every person has some knowledge even Gentiles who don't have the written law do instinctively the things of the law. Why? Because God has written the law in their hearts. Their consciences verify this, telling them they ought to do right, or, or that's not fair, or something ought to be done about that. Their thoughts bring accusations or put forth defenses. No one can claim ignorance. Everyone knows some truth about God. And yet the Bible says the response of everyone is to suppress his truth. And they end up with their own standards of right and wrong. And that's what we see. You have these unbelieving in Jesus, moral people making their own rules, setting their own standards, comparing themselves with others. They don't compare themselves with God and his standards. They've dismissed him. 
Without God, they do what's right in their own eyes. Read the book of Judges if you want to see what that results in. If we admit that there's this divine standard by which all of us must be judged, that all of us fall short of that, we're all going to find ourselves in need of a Savior and Lord. And that's exactly what the law written on an unbeliever, you know, this, this Gentile's heart. Uh, that's exactly what God is doing. You, you need a Savior. You need a Lord. You need a somebody. You need a God. You need a God who loves you and cares about you and wants the best for you and is willing to actually take up residence in your life. You need a God who will forgive your sins. You need a you need a new heart. A God who can give you a new heart. You need to know this God as your father. You need to know, you need to have direct access to him that you don't have to come to church. You don't have to go through a teacher. You don't have to go through a priest or through a certain action. You don't have to go to a certain place. You, you need somebody that you can have direct access to all the time in any situation. In verse 16, and this is the gospel I proclaim that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. This is your life. Your secret life. Many of you are old enough to remember. I don't remember it. I was just told about it. Uh, but this is your, there was a program on TV called This Is Your Life. Get Real? Oh. <laughs> I remember that program really well. They'd bring out somebody famous, and, you know, supposedly it was all, you know, unknown. They didn't realize why they were there, and they'd have people from the past come out. And how would you like to have something like that for you and all the secrets that nobody else knows would be brought out? Yeah, I know. That's what I think, too. No thanks. God will judge according to the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. And see, what, what would your secrets reveal? If you're counting on your works or favoritism, you know, God's, I'm one of God's favorites. Um, if you're counting upon, well, I have knowledge about God. Do you want the secrets of your heart brought out? One of the amazing things about God is he's able to assess, or he's able to reveal and assess motives and thoughts and secrets. Now, keep in mind here, we're dealing with non-Christians here with moral unbelievers. You see... Forgiveness and new life won't be based on the amount of truth that we have or the works that we've done or how many opportunities we have or how we look on the outside. It will, the issue always comes down to what have you done with Jesus? It's kind of amazing on Tuesday nights at our Bible Blitz, we've been going through how is a person made right with God, just with God. It's by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The object of our faith is Jesus, who because of who he is and what he did on the cross, 
we can trust him because he dealt with all sin issues. All sin issues. And on Friday mornings in kind of the Discipleship 3 group, we're going through exactly the same thing right now. It was unintentional. It's just happened. But how is any person made right with God? How are we made just with God? It's by faith in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way. Only Jesus, because of who he was at that time, who he still is today, but because of who he was and what he accomplished on the cross, it's only through him that we have salvation, that we are made just or right with God. It's such a beautiful message because the work has all been done. It, it's just so good. Lord Jesus, you have you've done the work. And so here I am realizing that I have sinned. I might look down on people. I might be an idolater. I might be a sexually immoral person. I might be socially uh, degrading to people. Uh, I might even be a religious person. But I realize that all that does not add up to anything. So, Jesus, here I am in great need of you. I need a Savior. I need a Lord. I need a life. You become my life. You're the issue. And may I understand that and receive you into my life by faith. And may we have that same attitude toward others. I put on your handout, God judges without partiality according to truth, works, opportunities, and the secrets of each person. What moral person stands innocent before such a judge? Obviously, no one. Verdict, guilty, sentence, wrath of God in the future. If you're not a Christian and you try to maintain your life as a moral person, there's no more hope for you than for the obvious sinner described in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. The unbelieving in Jesus person, too, is in desperate need of, for Jesus, his forgiveness, a new heart, and the Holy Spirit. The next paragraph, we can rightfully say, rightly say, that if God's wrath was the last word, strict justice would be satisfied, but no one would be saved. God's good news, Jesus on the cross dealt with all the sin issues. There are basically three sin issues. Number one is we are sinners by nature. Number two, we are sinners by choice and practice. We have sinned. We're guilty of sins. And number three, we have this, uh, you have sin in the flesh that needs to be dealt with. And Jesus dealt with all those issues on the cross. All sinners, your sins, my sins, other sins, Jesus died for them all. That is the good news of God. And if we, by faith, turn to him, believing in who Jesus is and what he did on the cross, receiving him as Lord, we're forgiven of our sins. We start life all over again spiritually with a new nature, and Jesus becomes our representative as well as Lord and Savior in life. So again, the crucial issue is what of you and what of others, what are they doing with Jesus? He's the issue. So Jesus, we recognize this. We thank you for your blood shed on the cross. We thank you for your body given. 
We pray that as we observe the Lord's Supper together, that we really remember who you are and what you did on our behalf on that cross. Thank you. We thank you for the salvation that's ours through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus, you're wonderful. (laughs) You're wonderful. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.